The House passes an Sullivan's ban for the first time in decades. Plus, Duke's Andrew Willinger discusses the fallout from the Bruin War. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and check out uh, our reporting today and sign up for our free newsletter or purchase a membership if you want to get exclusive member benefits, like, for instance, uh, getting this podcast the day early um, or getting access to hundreds of exclusive pieces of analysis and stories about uh, gun news across the country. Uh, this week, we are going back to the biggest Supreme Court uh, ruling on guns in over a decade, uh, the Bruin decision uh, that struck down New York's restrictive gun carry law and is likely to have uh, wide-reaching consequences from here on out. And I wanted to bring on somebody to give uh, you know an interesting perspective, a different perspective. We've had Charles Cook from National Review on. We've, we've talked about this with, uh, you know, Cam Edwards from Bearing Arms. And this week we're going to talk to uh, Andrew Willinger, from, who is the executive director of Duke's Firearms Law Center. So, um, Andrew, welcome to the show. Uh, can you give people just a little more background about yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for having me, Stephen. I, I'm really glad this worked out. Um, so, as Stephen said, I'm the executive director of the Duke uh, Center for Firearms Law, which is a uh, center uh, housed within Duke Law School that encourages balanced scholarship about the Second Amendment. Um, we host events and symposiums, and we also have the uh, Repository of Historical Gun Laws, which is a collection of about 1,600 laws from you know, medieval England up to the 1930s in America that's hosted on our website, uh, firearmslaw.duke.edu. Yes, and that's a repository that I imagine is going to become um, perhaps even more trafficked uh, by a lot of judges <laughs> <could already> ask. <laughs> uh, in the wake of, of this. Yes, uh, because that's one of the key takeaways from this this ruling, ruling in Bruin, correct? The uh, sort of the historical tradition of gun regulation in the United States uh, near the founding era or perhaps the uh, Reconstruction era um, and how much importance that, uh, that'll have on whether or not modern gun regulations are uh, constitutional under the Second Amendment. Uh, can you just talk about your view of of the Bruin decision generally? I'm just interested in your perspective on what it says and, and what what it means. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I know you've had some guests on to talk about Bruin before, so I won't I won't do you know too detailed a summary. But you know, at a high level, um, the uh, you know the plaintiffs in this case were two New York residents. I think they lived in upstate New York. Um, and so, so not not in New York City, but they uh, they had applied for uh, permits to uh, carry concealed weapons, sort of w- without without restrictions, right? So not just for for hunting or target practice, but just to carry them in public, um, and been denied. Um, and New York's uh, permit system required applicants to show what's called proper cause. So this is um, there are about seven or depending on your count, about about seven states that had a similar system. Um, and the way that New York state courts had interpreted this proper cause requirement was that it, it meant that an applicant had to show some special extraordinary need for self-defense, right? So it wasn't enough that, that they, they said, you know, I've had, there've been robberies in my neighborhood and I'm scared, something like that's not enough. You have to show that, you know, there's something like an actual threat made against you. You know, you have a stalker or something like that. 
Um, yeah, and, documented threat, right? Exactly. Police report. Exactly. Stuff like um, that. And so the uh, petitioners in this case uh, challenged that law, um, and the Supreme Court held um, that the law was unconstitutional. And I think there's two... You know, there's sort of two high-level parts of that decision, one of which was not all that controversial and one of which is very consequential. And I think we'll spend most of today probably talking about that second methodological part, right? Um, but the first, the first part of the holding is that the Second Amendment protects the right to uh, carry arms for self-defense outside the home. Um, and that's, that's something that lower courts had mostly accepted, even though, you know, Heller and McDonald, the earlier cases dealt with uh, bans on, on guns in the home that, the, you know, extended into the home and you, know, you had to keep your gun uh, in an unoperational state, uh, as with the, the D.C. law and Heller. Um, and so, th- you know, this is, as I get, again, as I said, it's something that was sort of generally accepted. It's something that the parties in this case agreed on, that the, the Second Amendment extended outside the home. Um, and so that's the first part of the holding. Um, and the second part is the more notable um, the, the, you know, the part that will have tremendous consequences for Second Amendment cases going forward, and that is that the court announced a new uh, history-focused approach to deciding, you know, after you make that initial determination that the conduct is protected by the Second Amendment, you then, uh, the government is required to come forward with evidence that the regulation at issue is supported by uh, the nation's historical tradition of gun regulation, right? So you have to find analogous regulations in history to support a regulation. That's different than the test that had uh, the, the Court of Appeals had coalesced around this two-step. It's, it's called a two-step test. We can get into that. That's a little bit confusing to me because it's sort of three steps and, and Bruin itself seems like two steps. But um, but, but anyway, the, you know, the, the, court, <laughs> the court rejects this this uh, this two-step framework and says that you know, you don't use uh, you don't use means and scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. You rather you look to whether the regulation is consistent with history. Yes, I believe uh, Thomas, in the majority opinion, said that the two-step uh, test was one step too many, um, effectively <laughs> wiping out uh, this decade-long trend of using. Uh, this this two step or three you know, maybe we should maybe three step would be more appropriate but you know uh, determining whether or not the second amendment is implicated and then um, using effectively a balancing test of uh, what the judges would often call intermediate scrutiny what critics would usually um, derisively refer to as a rational basis which is the lowest level of the balancing tests um, in order to uh, judge these cases. Uh, but still, the, the higher court did not find that to be an appropriate approach for uh, Second Amendment litigation. And now we have uh, a whole new approach, something fairly similar to what gun rights activists have been wanting and advocating for ever since, well, since uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh sort of came up with it uh, or coined the the uh, approach in uh, dissent that he wrote in another Heller case, right? I believe it was Heller 2. That's right. um, Which was about DC's assault weapons ban, uh, where Kavanaugh was on the the wrong side of a 2-1 opinion, but his dissent became very influential in gun rights circles as this, uh, what had been called text history tradition test. Um, Now, I guess Thomas wanted to shorten that down a bit, and it's just text and tradition. Um, I I guess the history is kind of implied with the tradition part, but, but, um, you know, the, then you also had, 
uh, a series of concurrences, which you actually wrote about uh, over on Duke's Law, uh, Law Center website. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you make of those concurrences from, because uh, you had th three of them, right? There was uh, um, Kavanaugh joined by Roberts, then Alito had his own concurrence, and then uh, Barrett had her own concurrence as well. And can you just give us your view on what, I mean, what do those concurrences say? And what do they, what do you think they mean, uh, you know, in the context of this full ruling? Sure. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, it's, it's always a little bit tricky to try to figure out why um, a, a justice who, you know, in this case, we have actually uh, four justices in total who joined Thomas's majority opinion, but also chose to write separately. Um, I don't think that's unusual in a high profile case like this. You know, judges, justices really want to sort of get their, their take out there. Um, and there's certainly no, no restriction on them authoring a concurrence as well. But I think there are some interesting things to, to unpack about these concurrences. Um, and the first is that, you know, there, there's this paragraph in Heller, um, which gets, I think, I think reproduced or at least quoted extensively in McDonald that says, you know, essentially, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, nothing in this holding cast doubt on certain longstanding gun regulations, right? So uh, right. prohibitions on felon possession of guns, uh, mentally ill, uh, sensitive places. Um, we can talk more about that because that's, that's really an interesting one. But um, mm -hmm. but anyway, um, you know, th this this paragraph, um, it got a lot of attention at, uh, at oral argument in, in Bruin. And, you know, what we see in the opinion is that there's a there's there's a page or two that talks about sensitive places um, where Thomas says, you know, we're not going to extensively analyze or, or provide a framework for sensitive places. But here's a few things that we think, uh, you know, lower courts can consider. Um, but the majority opinion does not reproduce that paragraph. So um, if you look at the concurrence by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, they actually cut and paste the paragraph from Heller and put it in their concurrence. I don't know why, but it's interesting to think about, you know, whether that was a point of disagreement among the justices, right? Because you'd think that if if Justice Thomas was, you know, wasn't trying to cast any doubt on on this on this paragraph in Heller and these type of prohibitions, that he would have been willing to put that put that verbatim into the, into his majority opinion. That's not what happened. Um, and you know, well, he does quote it uh, at one point. Yeah. He doesn't reproduce the entire paragraph, like you like you're mentioning there. Yeah. And they do, and you're right, they do. Uh, emphasize that in the Kavanaugh-Roberts concurrence. I mean, that the Kavanaugh-Roberts concurrence is kind of all about like, yeah, this is true, but doesn't mean we're, you know, throwing away these other possible restrictions. Right. Shall issue permitting is is perfectly fine as long as it's, you know, you're, you're actually doing it and not just using it as a fig leaf to not issue permits. But, um, you, you know, so it's... Uh, it certainly is. They're sort of like re-emphasizing the that this doesn't mean they're that all gun laws are now unconstitutional, uh, which was kind of the point of the the initial paragraph, right? In Heller, exactly. It's just to yeah. re-emphasize that this just applies to the thing we're talking about. Bruin goes a little further than Heller, Heller just because now they're giving a more uh, they're spelling out how lower courts should approach these cases, right? Um, but, but it still doesn't, you know, you know, they're not striking down all kinds of different laws. They're just dealing with the gun carry law in New York. And then they're moving to, um, to the, uh, you know, how, how to decide these second amendment cases going forward. Right. That That's right. Yeah. And, and as I said, it can be, 
it can be perilous to try to determine, you know, why why a justice decides to write a concurring opinion. Um, but it but it's notable that that that, that that's emphasized. Yeah. And I think you know Alito uh, similarly emphasizes the point that you mentioned about may issue versus shall issue. Right? He says nothing. You know, we're not we're not talking we're not dealing with shall issue regimes here. Those are fine. Nothing we've said here should cast out on them. So. Um, you know, again, just just, you know, a, a theme that runs throughout those two concurrences that, um, you know, at, at least as far as the, the holding um, that, that, that Bruin is, is limited to the, the type of permitting regime that New York had, which, you know, these other few states did as well. And then Barrett looks at uh, your analysis of Barrett's concurrence, I thought was really interesting because I, I thought a lot of the same things. She brings up this point, which is important about like, all right, well, if we're going to be using tradition, you know, how this regulate, you know, how, how states and the federal government have traditionally regulated guns, uh, you know, as a guide for whether or not a modern regulation is constitutional or not. Um, well, how do we actually make that determined? Like, where are we looking? You know, do we look at uh, right after the uh, ratification of the constitution? Do we look at uh, after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, because we're using that to, uh, you know, to, to uh, incorporate the Second Amendment to the states. Um, and she does, but she doesn't really answer because she says it's kind of not doesn't really matter in this particular case, because the laws at those two periods were similar anyway. But, uh, you know, she doesn't like you said, she, she didn't really give an answer. Right. Right. And I think, yeah, I, I think you're you're right. It, it's a little bit odd in that she sort of raises these historical issues, but then says, you know, I'm just just writing to kind of put them out there. Um, I, you know, I, I guess she agrees. She, she does agree with, with Thomas that they weren't necessary to decide Bruin itself. But the, I mean, these are, you know, these are important issues, albeit, I think, a little bit technical and and you know these this this question of this sort of ongoing legal debate about you know where do you look um you know when the, when the second amendment or another provision in the bill of rights is incorporated against the states through the 14th amendment what history do you look to right you know you could either look to the time that the that original language was ratified in the bill of rights in 1791 or you can look to the time that the 14th amendment was passed in 1868 and you know, I think no, no matter what you think of the of the court's historical analysis in Bruin, there are certainly going to be cases where the answers are different, and the answers depend on whether you look to 1791 or 1868. Right, and so that's, I mean, down the, I mean, you know, she makes a good point about down the line. This is going to be a, this is going to matter a lot, especially if this isn't limited to just the Second Amendment. Um, you know, it's going to matter a lot in Second Amendment cases, but the. Thomas talks about in in his in the majority ruling that this is not this kind of analysis isn't really limited to the Second Amendment. They use it in First Amendment cases as well, and and you know so forth. So you know her she raises an interesting question, but but doesn't do uh, too much to give us a, a, a real answer on. How, I mean, I guess it's just like we need to figure this out at some point. Uh, guys, like so we should probably give guidance on this. And I think you got it um, in your piece on uh, on this. There was, you know, talk about how how are courts going to handle this? So what what do you think this is going to ultimately end up with uh, as far as you know, courts putting this into practice? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think it's really an open question. And it's something that, you know, I think, um, I think people have some concerns about, right? How, how is this, how is this focus on history going to be implemented and applied, especially at the lower level of the federal court system, right? With, with district courts. Um, when you consider that the Supreme Court in Bruin had the benefit of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of amicus briefing, expert historians, right? I mean, they, they had a, a, a lot of resources available at their disposal to unpack the history here and to kind of figure out exactly what historical laws were around, right? And then they can take those laws and analyze them. And there's some concern about how judges at the district court level, I, I mean, at the appellate level, there often are amicus briefs, they have, have maybe more resources, but at the district court level, um, judges haven't really, they don't really have experience of doing history in that way. And they don't have the benefit of amicus briefing. Um, it, it's kind of unclear, you know, I, I think there are, you know, something that we've seen and we'll probably continue to happen is that we'll see ex, uh, historians being called as expert witnesses. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know the answer. And there's an interesting footnote in the majority opinion where Justice Thomas responds to uh, Justice Breyer's, you know, point on this, right? Justice Breyer sort of raises this, this question of whether the framework will actually work in practice. Um, and Justice Thomas says, well, you know, we rely on party presentation, right? So you rely on um, the government to come forward, you know, to do the historical work of kind of figuring out what laws might be analogs. And then the, the, the challenger can, can kind of take those apart and say, you know, here's why I don't think they're analogous. Um, and I think that that's, that's certainly a, a fair way to look at it. But I think there are hard questions out there. Like, for example, you know, what do you do if neither party raises a, a law that then at the appellate level gets, you know, somebody writes a brief and says, hey, you know, nobody, nobody brought this to the court's attention, but this is directly on point, right? Um, you can even see instances where there are, you know, new archives discovered or, you know, th this, this is not kind of a static thing, right, as we're going back and looking at the historical record. So um, I think there are going to be some, uh, you know, there's going to be some growing pains, certainly. Um, I don't know how exactly um, the lower courts will will do this. Um, and I think it'll vary a lot depending on you know, what kind of resources they have and, and who the parties are in the case. Yeah, that's probably true. I think that's probably a critique you could give of, you know, balancing tests as well. You know, how, how does a judge balance uh, whether or not, uh, you know, a law is uh, narrowly tailored to meet a compelling government interest? Like, what, you know, it's a, a lot of its judgment calls, right? That's, that's right in the name of the... I think that's job, fair. Right? I think, you know, the, 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 the thing I'd say on that is that it's, it's interesting, right? Because when you're, when you're finding, when you're looking at historical laws, you know, the, the idea behind a lot of originalist thinking is that these are facts, right? The, you're finding facts, mm -hmm. right? You're not, you're not dealing with legal arguments. So, right. you know, there, there's, there's generally uh, deference to fact finding, right? But the fact finding is here, you know, who is it going, who is going to do the fact finding, right? And that's sort of the, the question, how are these facts going to come before the court? You know, will there be deference given to the facts that are found at the, at the district court level, at the trial court level? Should there be? Um, so I think, you know, there, there's some, there's some questions here. I think it's a it's going to be a little bit different than, than what the, you know, what had happened under the two-step uh, framework, right? Because there you're dealing with, with arguments that the government's making saying, you know, this is why, you know, X law is, is empirically, you know, uh, is going to uh, accomplish our objective of, of public safety or, or something like that. Yeah. Of course, the common critique of that two-step test was that it almost always upheld 
whatever gun regulation was being challenged. And I think maybe that's part of why, like the, uh, I, I, one thing I wonder is whether the court kind of got fed up with what the lower courts have been doing, especially places like the Ninth Circuit, which was just upholding everything, um, you know, which, which a lot of gun rights advocates obviously got very fed up with that. But do you think that played a role in the court's, uh, the, the way they went about handling this case? I think that's probably fair. I mean, you can see some of that coming through in, you know, Justice Thomas, for example, had dissents from, from denials of certiorari over the years, right, where he said, you know, we're, you know, we're not, uh, lower courts are not faithfully implementing Heller. Um, so I think that's that's definitely part of what's going on here. Um, it's interesting, and you actually brought this up earlier, right? It's interesting that the, the historical tradition test, we'll call it, um, that the court actually uh, implements in Bruin, you know, this is something that postdates Heller, right? This is, you know, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, when he was a judge on the D.C. Circuit, um, you know, kind of is credited with pioneering this test in, I think, mm -hmm. 2000, 2011 in that, in that Heller 2 case. So, you know, it's not, you know, it's not that, um, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate between the majority and the dissent over, you know, what did Heller say? Did Heller rule out tiers of scrutiny? Did it just leave the question open? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think, you know, as, as it became clear how, you know, what, what test was being adopted at the appellate level, I think there was certainly uh, frustration among the originalists on the court that, you know, this is not what we meant in Heller. Was it clearly explained in Heller? I don't know. I think that's a matter that can be, you can go back and forth on for a long time, but but that's definitely part of what's what's driving the, the decision here, I think. Yeah, I mean, Heller was, I think a lot of this comes out of the fact that Heller was a compromised decision. They needed Kennedy to be on board to vote for it. And Kennedy didn't want to write a ruling or, or sign on to a ruling that had uh, extremely broad reaching consequences immediately. Right. I, I don't know. Like they just wanted to deal with our, can you ban all handguns for use inside of the person's own home? It's a, you read Heller and it's setting up this, here's the the bare minimum of what the Second Amendment protects. And to assuage any concerns about, uh, you know, just radically reworking the whole system overnight of gun regulation in the United States, they put in a couple paragraphs that said, look, this doesn't, you know, there, there's all kind of, in theory, there's the things you can do. You know, it doesn't mean that there's no regulation possible. Uh, it's not an unlimited right. You know, that, that's what they, uh, what Scalia wrote in there. And, um, you know, that, that, so you had to build out uh, a, a compre uh, comprehensible test from that ruling. And that's what Kavanaugh tried to do because, you know, all right, well, how did Heller come to this decision? It's that says some regulations are acceptable. Some that might not survive for instance, strict scrutiny could still be constitutional under the Second Amendment. You know, things like um, the National Firearms Act, the ban on M16s, right, which is explicitly mentioned uh, or at least alluded to. It talks specifically about banning M16s. But, you know, how can that be constitutional under the Second Amendment uh, under strict scrutiny uh, point of view? Uh, well, we're not using strict scrutiny. We're not using balancing tests. We're using the specialized look at uh, history and tradition of the United States. Uh, and so now we they've built that test out uh, into something more formal and brewing is that that's how I look at it. I don't, I don't know if that matches with how you view that that uh, 
evolution. I think that. that's, I think that's certainly, that's certainly the intent and that's certainly the idea. Um, I think, you know, one, one way, um, and, and it's actually, it's interesting. I was, I was looking this morning back at the, at the oral argument in Bruin and this comes up a lot. Uh, Ju- Justice Barrett raises this, um, when they're sort of talking about, you know, um, there's this back and forth about, you know, what can, what could New York designate as a, designate as a sensitive place? Um, could they, you know, Times Square, what about Times Square during New Year's Eve? Um, and, uh, you know, Justice Barrett says, uh, essentially, you know, doesn't this all come down to levels of generality, right? She says, isn't this, isn't this all just a question of, uh, you know, at what level of generality are you examining the historical record? And, you know, in Bruin, I think the court pretty clearly takes a takes a narrow view, right? The court says, look, we need to find a historical analog of a state limiting public carry to people who showed some special need, right? I don't know that you could get any more specific than that, right? That is what the New York law does. Um, you could certainly get broader, right? You could say, well, we're looking at, you know, we're looking for laws that, uh, restricted people from carrying weapons in public in dangerous ways, right? You, you know, you could, you, there are infinite levels that you could do, but you, you could go up. And I, I don't know, you know, a lot of, a lot of how this test works in practice will be at what level of generality do judges apply it. And yeah. it's going to be tough for judges to be consistent. Um, I, I think we're going to see variation uh, in, in, in different, different circuits. I think we're also going to see variation in these different categories of challenges that we'll see, right? So we'll see challenges to, um, where restrictions, right? Location restrictions, sensitive places. We'll see, uh, you know, who challenges, right? Challenges to what, what groups can be prohibited from, uh, from possessing guns. Um, we're going to see challenges to what, right? To, to what type of, of, of weapons, you know, assault weapons, magazine bans, things like that. And I think there's definitely going to be some, uh, you know, th- there are definitely going to be judges that, um, you know, allow their, their own opinions about the law, allow their, you know, their proclivities, their feelings about the law to sort of dictate how they do the historical analysis at what level of generality they do it. Um, you know, yeah. you, you can think about, you can think about things like, um, you know, you know, uh, the sensitive places doctrine, right. And the sensitive places cases that will come up, right. Um, at, at a high level of generality, you could say, well, what are the historical laws where legislatures, you know, banned guns in locations where they thought guns were especially dangerous, right. That would be the high level. Um, a lower level might be, you know, if you look at what justice Thomas identifies in the, in the opinion, it might be something like, you know, places that where people, engage in uh, important political activities, right, or things that are central to the democratic process. Um, and I don't, I don't know how those will come out, but I, but I will say that I think there's a lot of room there. And I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure that the, that, the, that the framework is as constraining of, of judicial discretion as, as the majority might, might hope. Yeah, I think that that's one of the key points here when, uh, when you're talking about the impact of this ruling and this new test is uh, it's probably not as um, broad as gun rights advocates would like it to be, or it probably won't be as broad as they'd like it to be. And it's probably, or as broad as gun control advocates fear it will be right. Uh, Just because there's so much you can do with that, uh, this idea of what, 
constitutes a tradition of regulation in the United States when it comes to guns. Because, you know, there was a there was an amicus brief in this case that took the route of looking at, uh, you know, historical um, regulation of of the of gun carry in the United States and made at least a, a decent case as to, uh, you know, not a totally laughable case as to how uh, it could be upheld under uh, New York's law could be upheld under um, a historical statute. Now, obviously, the court rejected this in the in the ruling, and I, you know, I, I think that the uh, the court's analysis in that of that specific question makes more sense. But it, it's not hard to see how a, a different balance on the court would come, even if they were using the exact same standard uh, and same set of facts, could come to a different conclusion on that point. And I think that's what you're going to see oftentimes at the lower courts that are, uh, you know, <laughs> inclined to give the state more deference when it comes to regulating firearms than perhaps Justice Thomas's. Uh, if that, you know, that makes sense, the, the more liberal courts will find, will probably go in a direction that says there is this tradition of regulating guns in all kinds of different ways in the United States, even at the founding era. Uh, and if you look at it from a certain point of view, if you step back just a little bit further, it fits. You know, there's an analog because the court doesn't require you to have a literal copy of, uh, you know, the modern regulation be found in historical tradition. You just have to find an analog that is associated um, now. Well, more, it more, seems than, to one, me that more the, than one analog, but yes. Should, right. You're right. It, it can't be just a single outlying law because the court addressed that with with uh, the New York case as well, but but you understand what you know. I, I, I'm a, I I think I completely agree with what you're you're getting at there as far as how this is likely to come out. Although the only thing I do want, like I, I think it will be harder to uphold some modern regulations and some of the biggest ones, some of the big ticket ones uh, under this new standard than under the two step uh, test that was. Uh, in place earlier, you know, things like assault weapons bans, um, you know, things like per, uh, permit to purchase laws, uh, especially ones that are extremely difficult to actually navigate in in uh, in practice, like in New Jersey, for instance. Um, you know, the magazine bans, uh, maybe universal background checks, even. Um, you know, it'll be. What do you think is going to be the practical, practical impact? Sorry, practical impact on those policies uh, in in the short term and then in the long term, because that they might be different, right? Right, right. And I think you know maybe for you know just to, to step back and talk sort of more broadly about what the impact of the decision is. Um, you know, I think there's the narrow impact, right? There's the uh, to take us back to, to what the Bruin case was about, right? There's the impact on permitting, um, on, on concealed carry permits, right? So I've already yeah. seen, I think all of the um, May issue or the, the states that the court categorized as May issue, either like New York, you know, passing a new law saying we're getting rid of, we're getting rid of proper cause. We're also doing a lot of <laughs> other things, which we, which we can get into. Um, yeah. And actually, and then, I, oh, go, ahead. Well, go ahead. Sorry. You finished, finish your point, but I want to watch you ask a follow up on that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, my, my point was simply, you know, you, you've seen you've seen New York do that. 
I think every other state that the court placed in that category has done something similar, not necessarily amending their laws formally, but having, you know, the state attorney general has issued an opinion letter saying we're not, you know, we're not enforcing um, our proper cause analog. Um, but I think, I mean, there's definitely still, there, there are still outstanding questions on even concealed carry permits, right? I mean, there are uh, moral character or, or suitable person requirements in you know, I, I think all of the May issue states have them, and certainly some some of the shall issue states did as well, right? So, to what extent do those allow for discretion? Are are, are those still okay? You know, it seems like the court says yes, but you know, where where you know where is is sort of where is the line, and what are what are states still allowed to consider in terms of the reason that that a person wants to get a, a permit? That's interesting. You think that those sort of moral good moral character clauses aren't functionally identical to the proper clause. I mean, I get, you know, I understand that in one, you have to prove you, you need this permit for a particular reason. Uh, but the, you know, the other one, you have to prove that you're a good person or whatever, um, whatever that means. Uh, but, uh, they both seem like clearly completely subjective, which appeared to be the main issue with, with, uh, the good reason, clause in, in this case, right? Right. And well, and I think I think that's sort of the that's the interesting twist on this opinion is that, you know, the court says these shall issue jurisdictions don't have to make changes, but some of them have these types of requirements in place, right? So it's mm. not really clear what to make of that or where we go from there. And I think I guess it I think comes see some litigation there. Yeah. I think that's like probably, I think that's probably right. I think for a lot of for a lot of the the permits, uh, you know, there's been um, again, we can talk, you know, if you want, we can talk more about the New York law and I've, I've written yeah. a post about yeah. that as well. But, you know, I think a lot of this stuff will play out as, as an as applied challenge. And that's what we see the court saying in, in Bruin, you know, that right. that even if you if you you know you implement shall issue, um, you sort of get your permit system the way that, that it needs to be. According to the court, you can still have an as applied challenge, which is not anything unusual. Right. If, if, if it's applied in, in a way that that is too cumbersome or has exorbitant fees for applicants, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I think you'll, you'll, that probably will happen in a lot of these, uh, these former May issue states, you'll see a lot of as applied challenges over wait times and cost and, and so on and so forth. And those will probably be a little more dicey as to how they'll come out. Uh, I think, you know, but some of these laws that have been passed in response to the ruling, uh, I know, feels to me at least that the outcome is far less dicey uh, and that these are just sort of blatantly unconstitutional things that are intentionally thumbing their nose at the Supreme Court. Um, but I, I'm interested in your perspective. Like this, uh, the New York laws that's basically make uh, everywhere a sensitive area. Um, the governor had a quote saying, uh, you know, when she was asked where it would be legal to continue to carry and she said, presumably some streets um, and basically nowhere else. They made the entirety of Times Square uh, a, a uh, gun-free zone. Um, they've inverted. Uh, this one's interesting because it's completely novel. I've never heard of anyone trying it this way before, but they've inverted things to where all uh, public um, businesses are presumptively uh, gun-free zones and have to put up signs saying they want people to carry there. Um how do you think these cases, that, that these new laws that that are passed in that in that vein, are going to actually uh, perform in in court? 
Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. It's a question that I'm sure, you know, I, there have been legal challenges already to New York's uh, to, to the law that New York passed. I'm, you know, those will take some time, I would imagine, to work their way um, through the court system. But I think, um, you know, to take the sensitive places, um, uh, the designation of sensitive places as an example, I mean, I think that's maybe the most high profile part of this law that, as you said, New York um, has a very expansive list, right? They, they include, um, you know, Times Square, bars, um, you know, parks, zoos. But I mean, there are, there are just, just, you know, it's a very public transit. list. Public transit, yeah. yep. Um, and, you know, it, it's not, there's not, as I said, there's not a ton of guidance in, in Bruin about the sensitive places issue. Um, the court discusses it briefly, um, but that, this is going to come down to at what level of generality are courts looking to history, right? Are they, you know, if you take a narrow view of the places that Justice Thomas listed, I think it was legislative assemblies, courthouses, polling places, those are all places that have a close relationship to government, political actions, voting, right? Maybe, maybe that's kind of the, the defining principle there. Um, but you can, you can think of other, of other ways that you could do this analogical reasoning, right? You could say places of public assembly, um, the court seems to cast doubt on that, right? Because Manhattan can't be a sensitive place just because it's crowded. Um, you know, you can think about um, the proximity of law enforcement, the availability of law enforcement in a certain place. Um, you know, it's interesting, even within the the, the brief passage in Bruin, um, it, it, you know, there's, there's not really an explanation of why the historical sensitive places that are identified would support banning guns in schools, right? I mean, that's something that that is in, it's in Heller, it's, I think, or, you know, this is something that the court has been saying that, that, that banning guns in schools is okay. Um, but again, it's going to depend on, on the level, uh, the level of generality at which a judge, uh, looks to history, right? Because there are, uh, there are historical laws out there. I think there, you know, there's, there's a fair amount actually from the South and, and the West in, in the, in the 1800s, uh, late 1800s saying, you know, you can't bring guns to, places where people assemble and then they list certain places, right? Um, if you go further back, there are prohibitions on, on carrying guns in fairs and markets um, in, in, in England, right? Um, so it's, but, but, but it's simply going to be a question of, 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 how do you, of how do you do that analogical reasoning? And there's not, there's not a ton in Bruin that we can, that we can go off of to yeah. predict. And I think, um, yeah, I was, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I just think one of the things and, and, this will be important for the next uh, part, the next question I want to ask you. But one of the things that all of what you're saying highlights is that Second Amendment litigation, Second Amendment case law is just in its infancy at the federal level. The, you know, the, Heller was 2008. Um, that was the first case to uh, recognize an individual uh, right to keep and, and bear arms. Uh, it was protected by the Second Amendment. Uh, even Miller was uh, the 1930s. Uh, which is uh, the case that, um, and it wasn't much of a case. There's not much to Miller, um, but that is the case that Heller borrows a lot from. Um, and and it just wasn't much of a, a question. I mean, there was a totally different uh, perspective on um, what the federal government could do and what the, you know, that the, the federal constitution only applied to limiting the federal government for a long time. And, you know, and there weren't federal gun laws until, the 20th century. And, and so there's reasons why it's relatively new uh, area of, of uh, concern for the court. But 
But I think, you know, a lot of this stuff just comes down to, well, they haven't addressed this yet because they've only really done like three important cases on the Second Amendment to this point. Uh, so they're just going to need to do a lot more and and lay out a lot more because there's, you know, in, in all the, the, the case law for the Bill of Rights, you know, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment case law is hundreds of cases long and deals with there's all kinds of contradictions and, and quandaries that they get into over the course of that time that they have to adjust later on or, or provide more detail to down the line. I think that's what you're going to see with um, Second Amendment uh, jurisprudence moving forward. Like one of my things is that in order to avoid the lower courts kind of just reverting back to what they've been doing, but under a historical tradition standard like the court doesn't want them to uphold a lot of these gun laws uh at least the more modern ones um then the court's probably going to have to step in a lot more often and take cases to do that uh just taking a case every decade uh, is probably not going to be a viable way of uh of the supreme court guiding the lower courts to put it uh you know in a friendly term uh, through Second Amendment uh, case law here. But but uh, with that said, what do you think are the remaining, you know, obviously we've got the safe spaces, uh, not safe spaces, the um, uh, sensitive places, <laughs> sensitive places. <laughs> uh, exceptions, which I am surprised that New York just went whole hog on it uh, right away. You know, D.C. got into the same fight or, you know, got into the same fight over concealed carry a couple years ago and then, didn't want to take this to the Supreme Court, so they gave up. And I thought that everyone was going to start modeling their laws after D.C. because uh, it hasn't been successfully challenged since they went to shell issue. And they have a lot of sensitive places restrictions. Yeah, I think um, there, there was recently a, a challenge to the, the uh, metro. Yes, Heller, is, Heller himself is back in challenging yep. uh, that again. Uh, and that is probably one of the more controversial parts of D.C.'s sensitive places rules because it basically cuts off concealed carry for a lot of people who live in DC, uh, just like New York's does. But uh, regardless, you know, what are the other areas that you see as remaining to, uh, you know, as, as being real open questions? Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of critique, for instance, of, you know, the common use standard, uh, this, this idea that guns that are in common use for lawful purposes are presumptively protected by the Second Amendment. This is something that will likely have uh, be litigated thoroughly in the, uh, you know, Sullivan's ban cases that are coming through the federal courts, including the one that the Supreme Court just sent back down to the Fourth Circuit. But, um, you know, what are some of the other uh, areas where they're just going to need to do a lot more uh, litigation on? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, you mentioned the court, um, you know, granting, start vacating and remanding. Uh, four cases that it had been holding um, while it decided Bruin. Um, and I think, you know, one of those cases, the the Hawaii case was very, very similar to Bruin. Um, Hawaii had a, had a restrictive uh, provision in its, in its permit scheme that I think went even a little further um, in, in requiring people to show some exceptional need. But the other three cases are not uh, concealed carry cases. Um, I think there's, a, there's an assault weapons ban uh, case, a magazine case. And so, I mean, you know, there, there, I think, was some thought that maybe the court would actually uh, grant certain and take one of those cases. Um, they, they haven't. They've sent them back. Um, and I think we'll 
sort of wait to see what what happens there. Um, just on, on the assault weapons point, there was a I, I think late last week a, a federal judge in Colorado issued a temporary restraining order of uh, Superior Colorado's assault weapons ban, um, and you know has it's a, it's a short opinion. I think there's there's a page or two of analysis that basically cites uh, some some federal uh, uh, appellate dissents um, and, and says you know. These statistics show that that semi-automatic weapons, excuse me, are uh, are popular or commonly owned for self-defense. That that means that they are protected by by the Second Amendment. And you know, the judge found that there was a likelihood of succeeding on the Second Amendment challenge there, and 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 enjoined the law. Um, important, I think, to note there that that's a that's an emergency application, right? That's not sort of a full determination of mm-hmm. of, of how that will will go. And it doesn't appear that there was any. Uh, historical discussion, right? Of like, you know, is this actually consistent with history? Um, Which would be, of course, be the next step under Bruin. Um, Another important point right there is is that he was an Obama appointee, which is interesting uh, as well. You know, not that uh, not that every judge is, uh, you can predict exactly how they're going to rule based on who appointed them. But it is, you know, it's an indicator, I would think. Sure. Um, yeah, and, and you know it'll be interesting to see what happens once there's sort of a, a more fulsome opportunity for the parties to actually to brief that case. Um, you know, the other we, we've seen some uh, some courts actually applying Bruin. It's it's been kind of uh, I, I don't think like the avalanche that you would expect, just because the especially at the federal level these things can move relatively slowly. But you know, there, there's been a lot of litigation as there was in the intervening period between Heller and McDonald and Bruin about these. Uh, these group prohibitors, right? So uh, you have criminal defendants saying, you know, I'm I'm, cha- I'm, I'm challenging the the the, uh, the felon gun ban, right? Um, and those haven't gone very far, right? Even after Bruin, the, the you know courts are still saying that the, those are those are fine. Um, and I think the opinion the opinion supports that for the most part, at least as to most of those prohibitors. Um, so I think that's that's an area um, where we'll, we'll continue to see see those cases come up pretty frequently. Um, you know, you mentioned um, you mentioned earlier this uh, th- this thing that New York is doing, which is I think it is you know novel, and that I don't think other states have done it yet. Although it may be under discussion in some in some blue states, which is to flip the private property default, right? To to say that um, you know that the default used to be that um, you could you know if you if you had a permit, you could you could carry your gun unless you know onto private property unless the you know business or something like that unless the uh, the owner uh, posted a sign saying guns are not allowed. Now it's the opposite. The assumption is that you that you uh, can't carry there unless unless explicitly allowed. Um, and that's that's a tricky one. I mean, there have been um, there have been challenges already to that, but it's not really clear what the what the hook is, right? I mean, because there they, you know there are also cases out there. There's a, I think an Eleventh Circuit case um, that you know. It, it holds, and I think it's it's pretty clear. I mean, this isn't exactly what New York's law does, right? But it it's clear that you have the right to keep guns off your property if you say so, right? That's always that's always been true, right? You have a, mm-hmm. a property right to say you can't you can't uh, you can't carry guns in my business if I if I if I tell you not to. Sure. Um, so so although yeah, there have been some exceptions with like uh, employees and cars and park, parking, parking lots and stuff. Sure. But yeah. Sure. But generally, yeah. Um, so I think you know if we if we see other states doing that, I think it'll be. Um, it'll be fascinating to see what um, what types of challenges are. I'm sure there will be quite a few. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it'll be yeah, I, yeah. I think there's just a lot left for the court to weigh in on and, and get a real record of 
you know, now we have first we had that the Second Amendment means at least this thing, which is that you can keep the most popular kind of gun employed for self-defense in your own home. Uh, for, uh, and then now Bruin has expanded on that and given us a test of how to handle Second Amendment cases. And I'm sure that test is going to be refined over the coming decades, uh, hope, presumably, hopefully for a lot of gun rights advocates maybe the coming years instead of uh, having to wait 12 years between each, each ruling from, from here on out. But, but uh, yeah, I just think there's uh, there's a lot of open questions and I imagine you guys will be uh, writing about all of them <laughs> over uh, at the Duke Firearms Law Center. Can you tell people where to, where they can read more uh, from you and, and the other uh, experts that you publish there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you can go to uh, firearmslaw.duke.edu. Um, that's our website. As I said, we, we host uh, the, uh, the repository of historical gun laws, which we're in the process of, of building out after Bruin. And I think you know, it's going to be an important resource. Um, and we also have a blog, Second Thoughts, which you can you can find on our website. Um, and, and we're on Twitter uh, at Duke Firearms Law. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you giving us uh, the time here. Thanks so much, Stephen. It's great. All right. It's time for our news update. Contributing editor Paul Crookston here. Um, Stephen, what are we talking about this week? I'm thinking it's the assault weapons ban. Yeah. You know, sort of a surprise move this week. Uh, after initially announcing they were going to push this vote to after the August recess, so which would have been you know, probably about two weeks um, from this point. They made a big reversal. They broke up the package that they had tried to put together with this assault weapons ban um, and instead just went straight to the floor with just the ban. It had been paired with uh, this police funding bill that moderates uh, wanted to get through, uh, but was ultimately blocked, at least for now, by uh, the Progressive Caucus and the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, who didn't like some of the language in the bill, they wanted more, I guess, uh, robust uh, provisions for police accountability to go along with this funding. Uh, and that basically held up that part of the deal. And it turned out that the moderate Democrats, uh, I, don't, I mean, I guess they just got rolled. They don't, they got, they, they, there's a promise that they'll continue on that part of this, this deal. But, uh, you know, it's just a promise at this point. Um, and so instead the, the bill suddenly Friday, uh, went to a, a vote and passed. It passed by the thinnest margins. It was 217 votes for, uh, 213 against one non-vote, uh, Republican didn't vote. I'm not sure who that is actually, but, uh, you had five Democrats cross over to vote against the bill and which meant they needed a Republican, at least one Republican to vote for it in order for it to pass uh, because it needed to get at least 216 votes uh, given that everyone was voting and um, uh, they got two Republicans. So uh, they got Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania and uh, Jacobs from New York who Jacobs, uh, this is his big hurrah vote. He uh, said he was coming out for this ban on sales and um, that, Got so much backlash in his district that he's now retiring, but he did end up voting and was a key vote to make this happen. Um, now, 
you know, to be clear, this is just the House of Representatives. Uh, it is a big deal because this is the first time they've passed an assault weapons ban since the first one, the 1994 assault weapons ban, which expired in 2004. No House has actually voted on an assault weapons ban since then. Um, and this is the first time it's passed by the thinnest of margins. It's a thinner margin than what the other gun control package passed by, uh, the, the lowest one there. They actually kind of duplicated part of that package because the last month's gun control package that the House passed uh, had a magazine ban in it. Um, and so does this assault weapons ban. So Congress has been, at least when it comes to guns lately, they've been really into just redundancy. Uh, they've been passing things that uh, are either already law. For instance, uh, they, they created a new crime for straw purchases, uh, even though it's there's already a crime for straw purchases. Uh, you know, and they, so they've done a number of these things. And now the House has passed two separate, though I believe completely identical, uh, magazine bans. Uh, but the previous magazine ban got 220 votes which was the lowest of any of those proposals as well. But now this new assault weapons ban got 217. And it will move to the Senate where probably nothing will happen, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's not like it'll um, lose. It probably just won't go anywhere, right? It, yeah, it probably won't get a vote. Uh, that would be my guess. I will. It could get a vote. You know, it's not impossible. Schumer could bring it to the floor. The schedule is super packed on the Senate. I mean, it's packed on the House side, too. They only have, uh, you know, probably another 20 days of actual legislating until the midterms, maybe a little more than that. Uh, you know, the August recess, they're going to come back early from that to finish some other work. Uh, maybe they'll, you know, there's so there's probably opportunity to do some uh, something during that time. But uh, you know, either way, even if they do find the time, uh, there's just not the support by a long shot uh, in the Senate because you'd need 60 votes first off, and you're not going to get 10 Republican votes. You probably aren't going to get a single Republican vote. There isn't a Republican senator who has uh, come out in support of this policy. And then there are a number of Democrats who are unlikely to vote for it as well. Um, yeah, it's you know, it's not but, like all 50 Democratic senators are co-sponsoring this, right? No, there's only 37 co-sponsors. Now, you'd probably get more who would vote for it, just like this House sure. bill had uh, – it was about 210 people who could actually vote on it were co-sponsors, and it ended up with about 217 votes. So, uh, you know, there's 37 co-sponsors on the Senate version of this bill. You maybe could get to 45 if you really tried hard. I, I don't know, maybe more. It's hard to say exactly, uh, but there have been multiple – Democratic senators, including, you know, John Tester and um, uh, you know, who've come out to say they don't want to, they're not for an assault weapons ban. Um, and I highly doubt that even some of the ones you might be able to pull over to the yes side would actually want to take that vote two months before an election. Uh, but you never know. Uh, the other problem with the Democrats in the Senate taking the vote is, uh, because you're likely to see Democrats vote against it, it sort of undermines the message here, which is that Republicans, I mean, it's kind of already <laughs> undermined a bit, but the message is that Republicans are blocking this from becoming law. Um, and so if you go to a vote in the Senate and it's 
Democrats who keep it from getting to 50 votes, well, it kind of undercuts the message. Although it needed Republicans to pass the House anyway. Um, it only got two. You know, there's an obvious party breakdown here. 215 Democrats and two Republicans uh, supported it. So it's not exactly a, a shining example of bipartisanship, but, but um, you know, they couldn't have passed it without those Republicans. Yeah, yeah it's still technically uh, bipartisan. Um, so the idea... Yeah, I know what you mean. The narrative is unclear. And I guess this leads in to what I think is one of the many interesting things about this. What do you think is the motivation here for the Democratic caucus? Well, I think it's certainly a messaging bill. You know, this is part of uh, their their message going into the midterms. The You know, they, they understand what they're up against. The economy is doing very poorly. We've now entered into a recession uh, after two quarters of negative growth. Have we? Uh, right. And <laughs> a, you know, what most people would consider a recession, <laughs> at least. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've got inflation at all time, you know, the 40 year highs. Yeah. And you've got all these problems with the economy uh, the, and people are very unhappy. Gas prices are through the roof. You know, there's all these other issues that are kind of at the top of people's minds. And you can see this when you look at polling on issue importance. Guns is up a little bit from where it usually is. Usually it, it hovers around one to 3% of people consider guns the most important issue. It's uh, the most recent polling I've seen had it at 4%. Um, of course, in that poll, uh, we wrote about this uh, at the reload, uh, the president's approval rating on guns is, is dismal, uh, just like it is on basically everything. Um, so uh, the idea that making gun control a big part of your push for the midterm elections is is uh questionable at best uh i think in, in this environment and then using this particular policy is even more of a stretch I think. the thing is they have already passed successfully a gun control bill this session you know it's the first uh restrictions on who can own firearms in the last several decades and um, they got that through on a bipartisan basis and the president signed it. So they had, you know, an accomplishment. They had a win. And now they're uh, kind of, which was a pretty good win for moderates too, because, you know, it, as, as significant as it was, it wasn't, you know, uh, an expansive ban on, on, you know, guns like this bill is. And this bill is not that popular um, anymore. This policy is polling below 50% now. It's at all-time lows in the Quinnipiac poll. Um, and even in uh, morning consults polling, which has still has support a bit higher than Gallup and, and Quinnipiac, you're still seeing uh, no sizable increase after Uvalde. And it's still down several points from its high point back in, in 2019. So uh, as they're doing this for the first time, the same the policy that they're pushing uh is losing popularity it's a very interesting i i admit you know i've covered politics for a while it's hard for me to get my head around this one i mean they had a win they looked kind of statesmanlike for all the reasons that you explained with the previous gun control bill it was something substantive that got passed and now you shoot for the moon on this and 
it's pretty, you know, it's a, it's a long shot to even get taken up in the Senate. Um, is this a case of the the progressives running the show? Like, do is there an activist? Is there just a real activist energy around this particular policy that Pelosi just felt like she couldn't resist? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, this has been a marquee policy for uh, liberal Democrats for decades. This has been the thing that they talk. There's two policies that they talk about, universal background checks and an assault weapons ban. And by the way, just to give everyone a little bit of background on what exactly this bill does, because assault weapons is a nebulous term, right? It means something different in each state where there's an assault weapons ban implemented. Uh, this bill would use uh, the 94 definitions or something very close to them. Uh, so a center fire rifle that accepts detachable magazines and has uh, certain features, including, um, you know, pistol grip, uh, barrel shroud. They even kept in some of these 90s features that nobody, uh, no guns really have anymore. Uh, uh, the bayonet, bayonet lug, um, flash suppressors, uh, um, you know, uh, adjustable stocks, you know, th those sorts of things are what make something that's the same caliber, same size rifle, uh, same length of barrel that makes one uh, regular gun, I guess, a regular rifle and the other one an assault weapon um, that's banned. Now this one, uh, the old, the 94 ban, you could have one feature, one of those features you could have on your rifle and it still uh, would be uh, fine. This ban goes further and makes it so you can't have any of those features. So it's it's much more expansive in practice than the old ban, but it's very similar in terms of definition. It also affects uh, some semi-automatic shotguns and some handguns too. The handguns by weight, where they're trying to go after like the AR and AK pistols, um, you know, because your gun can't your your handgun can't weigh too much or else it becomes an assault weapon. Um, and then they add some stuff like uh, pistol braces, uh, which, again, is kind of redundant because of the weight thing. Like they're going they're, the whole point of the weight requirement is that they don't want AR pistols and AK pistols to be allowed under this law. And so AR pistols and AK pistols are what you put uh, pistol braces on. But so they've also made it redundant and banned those as well. They've also clearly have no idea. The, the bill's sponsor, Cicilline, uh, Rep. Cicilline, has no idea what a <laughs> pistol brace is, we learned in uh, the, the hearing on the, on this bill, because he thought that it is the same thing as a bump stock and that a pistol brace will make your gun uh, a, a machine gun, which is <laughs> just a complete, it's completely uh, absurd. But anyway, um, regardless of all that, that, so that's what the bill does. Um, and and uh, I think it's it's important to be clear on this. It's, it, and, you know, you see major outlets struggling with to describe these things because it is nebulous. I mean, you know, the Associated Press, you know, bless their heart, they try, <laughs> they tried to <clears throat> they've tried to improve their reporting. You know, they, they put out a uh, an update to their their style guide that said, you know, avoid these terms like assault weapon, assault rifle, uh, military style, right? because they're they're nebulous, they're politically charged. Um, and so when they reported on this, they tr they tried to substitute assault weapon with semi-automatic guns. But the problem there is uh, this assault weapons ban targets 
a specific subset yeah. of semiotic. It's not all it semiotic. Out, well, yeah. all of them. Uh, and so that becomes misleading. They later changed it to certain semi-automatic guns, which is which is accurate. It's a much better way of describing it. I just, you know, for us, we, trend, we try to do, uh, I use assault weapons in quotes and then try to explain yep. what the heck Any it means. Any particular bill, context. exactly. Yeah, and, and like examples of the specific, like they're targeting AR-15s and AK-47s. Yes. That's what they want to go after, uh, that because they view those as particularly dangerous and those they show up in uh high profile examples of mass shootings of course including uvalde uh and so that's the motivation behind these bans um but they of course go well beyond the ar-15 and the ak-47 to lots of other kinds of guns as well and so it's important to try and explain that to people so they can understand what the heck is going on but yeah um so this bill it made it through the house i mean it's they're going to run on this bill, some of them, uh, and it will be interesting to see how that works out. I, you know, to me, and I, we'll have more on this over at the reload, probably uh, for for members. You know, they'll write about this for the the members newsletter this week. But um, I mean, the, the only people this helps in theory are the ones living, you know, the ones in districts where. They need a lot of uh, activist support to, they, they want to fire up the, uh, you know, liberal activists in the area, the gun control activists. Uh, and so this is, you know, passing all those other stuff wasn't enough for most of those activists. Um, even this bill, David Hogg was like protesting this exact bill during the hearing on it for some reason. Uh, that's, it wasn't very clear to me, but uh, you know, he celebrated the passage of it in the House. But the problem, I think the, the ultimate problem with that strategy is like, it's still not much of a co an accomplishment because it's not going to become law. So you pass it in the House, uh, but Democrats are going to block it in the Senate, whether it comes up for a vote or not. So I don't know. I mean, I guess in your individual race as an individual House member in like a Biden plus seven district, m maybe that has some sway with the activists there but you know it's one of these things where it's like <clears throat> the the gun groups also on each side have become so part of you know they've become so captured by partisan politics that like what it, what is giffords and every town going to do if you don't pass this bill anyway they're still going to give you millions of dollars <laughs> they still want you in office because they don't want your all uh, opponent so uh, you know the only thing you're pu pushing for now is hopefully that this impacts grassroots uh, enthusiasm, which I mean, will it? I guess that's the open question. I don't, I don't see a good case. Yeah, if I put on my pundit hat. It seems like Democrats right now are panicked about enthusiasm, and they're just like, "What's the classic Democratic issue?" You know, the assault weapons ban, like you said, it's a marquee yeah. policy. It's not as popular as universal background checks, though, right? What's about? No. Where is it polling right now? No, it's not even close. It's polling at forty nine percent. Uh, to like 45. So, and the other thing about it is, I, you know, and, and this has been the old cliche, but I think the enthusiasm gap benefits the pro-gun side. Uh, yeah. You know, it's just, I just think that a lot more people are going to be motivated to come out and vote against somebody who voted for this bill. Uh, and that's going to hurt those 
swing district Democrats a lot more than it's going to help any D plus seven, D plus 10 Democrat in practice. Uh, but it, I mean, I guess the thing is like those people are, those guys are probably already they're They're, they're lost anyway. Yeah. Just because of the, the atmosphere that, that they're running in. So <laughs> I don't uh, know. It might not have much of an impact at all, I, to be honest. With I you. don't know about you, Stephen, but I feel weird every time I say that I know more about a political party's interests than they do. Um, it, you know, it's a very presumptive thing to say, a presumptuous thing to say. But I can't escape the conclusion that this is just stupid. This is just politically dumb. They're they're at a at a critical juncture before the midterms. I think they're doing something that for some weird combination of reasons they've convinced themselves is going to help them. And it just I don't think it is. I think it's just a, I think it's just a blunder. I hate to be so simplistic in my thinking, but I this really I can't find an angle where this makes sense to me. And you were talking on Twitter about how you felt like it it wasn't going to happen because it didn't make sense and people pushed back on you and stuff. And I, I think I think there's just the the common sense uh, political reasoning to me is very clear that this this is not something that's going to help them. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it working out well. I don't think it's going to forestall this, uh, you know, the, the, this coming red wave that you're going to see in the House. Uh, I mean, that's just I don't know that anything's going to. They're they're trying to use wedge issues, abortion and guns, uh, classic play, I guess. But uh, they're focusing. They'd already I, one of the problems they had is that they already passed all the other gun control bills. They already did a ton on guns before this. Um, so this was the last big thing. And it uh, I just don't know how it's going to help in reality. And uh, now, look, there's another aspect to it of like they know they're going to lose the house and who knows when they'll get it back again. So maybe it's a last hurrah kind of thing. You know, they I'm sure I'm sure that many of them genuinely believe in this policy. Uh and, and think it will help with mass shootings. Um, and so you can't completely disregard that as much as uh, we all <laughs> know how politics really works. But, but you know, I'm sure there's some, some part of this is like, they really believe in this policy. They really think, they really don't think people should be allowed to own these guns. Um, <clears throat> and their, their, their beliefs match <clears throat> their rhetoric to at least some degree. And so this was the last chance to do this bill for probably a long time. Uh, and, you know, to Pelosi's credit, you know, she got it done. Uh, it didn't seem possible, but uh, she, she walked the razor's edge here to get this exactly the number of votes it needed to pass um, plus one. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> like, I, you know, I always said, I didn't think the timing made a lot of sense the way they were doing this, but, I always said that if it got to a vote, it would probably pass and it got to a vote and it passed. So uh, we'll, we'll have to watch how the political fallout goes from here. I know one thing I know is that all these Democrats that are going to lose that probably probably would have lost anyway. Uh, now the gun, the gun rights groups are certainly going to uh, uh, count every single one of the people who voted for this and say they lost because of it. And I don't <laughs> know if that'll be true or not, but it's definitely something that you're going to see. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll be here watching 
the whole thing. But uh, that's it for this week. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. If you want, if you really like the show, I uh, request that, and you listen this far. I mean, you must be pretty dedicated to get all the way through. Uh, uh, please go and leave a, a, a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use. It really helps the show grow, helps more people find it. Um, share the links, you know, on your social media and and uh, with your friends. If you like what we're doing here and want to support us, you can also head over to thereload.com and pick up a membership. That is how we fund ourselves. We're a very small publication, as you could probably uh, uh, tell from the podcast, um, you know, there's only a few of us doing this work and we really uh, rely on our members to make it possible would not happen. Otherwise uh, you'll also get early access to this podcast and the opportunity to appear on the show. If you are a member and want to come on, just reach out. We'd love to have another member uh, segment soon, but um, yeah, that's it for this week. And we'll see you guys next week.